Hi guys, and welcome to episode three of the Narrative Wargamer podcast. Tonight, uh, with me, I have Dave. Hello, my name is Dave Barker. <laughs> uh, glad to have you with me here tonight, Dave. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, as are probably most of the listeners by now, um, fortunately, Adam has uh, had to uh, take a little bit of a break from the show, so you've uh, very happily stepped in to fill his shoes for now, haven't you? Yeah, more than happy to uh, join you on the show this time. Yeah, and I'm more than happy to have you here, so thank you for that. Like, um, I mean, it, it's fair to say you've listened to the show before and you've enjoyed it, and you, just, you were more than happy to come along and join in, weren't you? Yeah, 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 you put out a, a post asking for uh, anybody that was interested in talking to you, and uh, I responded to that by message, and you, you kindly picked me up, and uh, here we are. <laughs> um, so tonight, guys, we are going to go through a whole bunch of things, including my ongoing paint station garrisons, as well as uh, Dave's apparently very vast paint station garrison. Um, it sounds like you're setting me up to put up a photo up already, uh, Tony. <laughs> oh, well, I've heard apparently there are some very interesting paint schemes that I need to see at some point. Yes, I'll, I'll dig those out and we'll talk about those <laughs> later. Um, and then we'll be talking about um, a game that I played recently with a friend, um, just round at well, my house, really. Um, and uh, you've got a few sort of older games, some highlights from the past, haven't you? Do you, you got to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. As, as as we were preparing for this show, you asked me what games I've played of 40k recently, and uh, to my great surprise, I've not played in 10 to 12 weeks, so um, I've pulled out a few of the games I've, I've played in the past that we will talk about, uh, just three or four of them that are uh, a little bit interesting, and when I say in the past, over the last six months, not not, not in the deep past. <laughs> oh, it sounds like there is also lots of deep past history with the game for you, so I'm sure you've got lots of stories. Yeah, well, we'll not get them all out on the first uh, time on my show, <laughs> Um, and then we will have a, a spotlight topic tonight which will be talking about using the different kinds of battle zones that exist in narrative play in 40k um, so it's going to be fun to talk about those because I think they're a really underrated and really useful like piece of gaming tech really to really add some some extra layers of narrative gameplay to your games so that'll be fun but we might as well dive straight in with Dave's introductions. Um, so it's your first time on the show, so inevitably there are going to be lots of questions I would like to ask you about your experiences with the hobby. Um, Absolutely. Where would you like to start, Tony? Well, we might as well start at the beginning. How long have you been playing 40k for? Uh, I'm not sure I want to give that in years, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure most of uh, the listeners to this podcast are good enough to pick up that if I say I started playing in 87 or 88, they'll be able to uh, roughly work out my age. <laughs> I, I picked up first edition uh, very early, my first or second year at senior school, I, I don't remember clearly, so so since about 87, 88 I've been playing uh, 40k, that wasn't actually my first uh, GW game, I, I picked up uh, Epic first, I was really uh, enthralled with the uh, the idea of the uh, Horus Heresy Wars, uh, um, the space marines fighting space marines, and uh, more so Space Marine than Adeptus Titanicus, actually. Um, so that was my first real Games Workshop game, although I've been playing role-playing games and a bit of uh, 172 Historical with some friends before that. Actually, sci-fi has always been deep into me. Since I was about four or five, I started watching sci-fi shows and knew I loved it. So when I 
when I then started finding 40k as well, that was that was a thing I really wanted to get into. <laughs> and uh, on and off, I've been playing ever since. So all the way through through my school years, uh, even at university, uh, a little bit, um, I, I carried on playing. Certainly painting. I've certainly painted a lot more than I've played. I think over the years. Um, but I definitely um, kept that up over university. And then when we, by the time I left university, uh, got married. We were uh, living in different cities, and the first thing I always set up my wife complains about was a painting desk even before <laughs> I built the bed when we moved house. Oh, uh, yeah, Get, um, getting your hobby space set up again is always the most important thing when you do a house move, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm very lucky. My wife's always been very tolerant as a, a wargaming widow. She's uh, <laughs> She puts up with this hobby. She always says it's better to know where I am in the house painting than have me roaming the streets drinking. <laughs> So um, she's not not into any of that stuff herself, but um, all the things that we enjoy and painting and playing. But she's uh, she's quite happy for me to do it. That's great. And then um, I, as you can you can tell, I'm I'm from up north like you are, originally, <laughs> but now I I live in work in uh, well near Cambridge. Uh, I work in Cambridge. I live near Cambridge uh, in the UK. And um, since I moved down here, I found a club, and I've been playing an awful lot more. Um, all lots sorts of different games, but um, definitely, definitely plenty of games, workshop games too. Like finding a local club is always a really like, well, great motivator for getting involved in the hobby. I definitely advise Absolutely it. Absolutely, it is. I feel like I looked out a little bit just after we moved down here. I'd started connecting with local gamers on um, on Twitter. Actually, I was using quite a lot at the time, um, and I came across uh, a bloke who was setting up a club that was within, you know, ten fifteen minutes driving distance from my work on a Friday evening. So oh, regularly on a Friday evening, I uh, I just uh, get out of work, go and help set the club up, and then game all night. And, uh, my wife does stuff with our girls uh, on Friday evenings, and I, I go gaming with my mates. But it's uh, it's a real good driver to, to to learn new games, to play things, to meet people, to set up um, events even, and um, and get together with people and tell stories using our wargaming figures. That's what I most love about um, a club. See, I, unfortunately, I was a little spoiled, I think, um, a couple of years back when I was at uni the first time, because I actually went to uni in Nottingham in the UK. Right. So my local store for about two and a half years was actually Warhammer World. <laughs> okay. That's, uh, that's, that's most... That's different from my experience. My when I was at university, I was at university in uh, Aberystwyth. Uh, for those that know it, as a small seaside town in Wales, with a university, really nice place. I'm really glad I went to university there. But the local game shop was was a bit of an everything game shop, as well as a place where tourists went and uh, to buy toys and stuff. Right. So it was a very very mixed bag. Um, but it was the guy who ran it was brilliant, um, and he was very encouraging. There was no space to go and play games or anything like that in the store. It was it was one of these Aladdin caves places where it was absolutely packed out with games and uh, <laughs> books lining the walls. And if you dug behind something, you'd find an old role playing game, or if you were lucky, an out of print miniature from Games Workshop. <laughs> a real uh, a real pleasure to go and see. And when I've been back since, I've I always make uh, an effort to call past. I've, I've not been back in a few years, but. He's always got something in there that's of interest that's worth picking up. Yeah, I know the kind of places you, you mean. I can think of one or two myself that I've found over the years. Like I say, they're always a real pleasure to sort of just discover hidden gems. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so then, if you've been collecting for so many years and you've been to all these wonderful little places and found all these amazing little finds, 
what armies do you actually collect within the hobby? Yeah, I I think I'm uh, in every group. There's the the collector guy that's got the the lead mountain that appears to be larger than their house, <laughs> um, and I I think I'm that guy in our local group. I'm uh, I'm a collector and a painter. I'm I'm not so good at selling stuff. Um, I uh, tend to hoard it up and buy stuff cheap where I can, and and work through and paint it. So. Um, <laughs> When when we all get going to a games workshop, we get approached and they say, "Which army do you do you play?" Usually easier for me to say all of them, although that's probably not quite true. <laughs> it sounds like it's about ninety percent true. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I um, my first love is Space Marines. Really, um, I've always liked Space Marines ever since I started. As I said, I started in uh, with Rogue Trader first edition and um, there's a fantastic colour spread in Rogue Trader of all the different Space Marine uh, chapters that you could play at that time uh, a dozen of them including some exotic things um, blood drinkers we don't hear of so much uh, field police were fantastic um, if you've seen the piece of artwork that I'm talking about but I uh, I wanted to play the Rainbow Warriors I thought they were fantastic I don't know why they just appealed to a young bee and said that's the chapter I want to play but um, unfortunately, I they're a nice blue, they're, they're a standard ultramarine blue in the book, and uh, a few people uh, play and, and show pictures of their Rainbow Warriors online, not many of us unfortunately, but the standard colour scheme has, has sort of the stripe down the helmet, like the old uh, Beaky Marines used to have, which is different colours, unfortunately it's not even a rainbow actually, it's just a <laughs> many different coloured stripe, and I thought, that's great, but I, I can do a little bit better. So the... the whatever I was at that time, the 12-year-old me decided I need to come up with a different colour scheme for those guys. And I based it on the blue, it had to be based on the blue, but I, I made up my own scheme where they would have different coloured helmets and different coloured uh, hands and feet, um, all based on, on the colours of the rainbow. I decided to go for six colours, because at the time with the Citadel paints that were available, there wasn't really a very good indigo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so the, my rainbow was all based around six colours. But they have different coloured helmets for the diff each different kind of thing that they do. So the, the, the Terminators all had purple helmets, the Tactical Marines had blue helmets, the uh, Tech Marines uh, specialist colour was yellow, the Assault Marines was orange, etc. And um, they're, they're much more vibrant and livid and, and definitely more full of rainbows than some of the others you see. So I think uh, after this I'll make sure there's a couple of photos up on the um, on the Facebook group and if you want to put them up elsewhere that's fine Tony. I was going to say you definitely want to get those up on the Facebook group because yeah. they sound amazing and I want to see them. They're, they're certainly quite... Um, lurid <laughs> they've had some of them have had a little bit of rebasing since so they're not quite as uh, quite as uh, all as fully um, goblin green in their base as some of the things were at the time um, but they um, I, I've certainly been accused at different times that they're not they're not loyalist imperial marines anything that colourful must belong to uh, Slanesh <laughs> <laughs> either Slanesh uh, or possibly Zinchian yeah absolutely but that's one of the great things that I like about uh, a lot of my Toy Soldiers, actually, is if I can find different stories to tell with them, um, that I can just use the same miniatures and say, these are my loyalist Rainbow Warriors, and these are my Rainbow Warriors corrupted by chaos. But they're the same ones. You can then you can use them in different battles, telling telling different stories, uh, and that's that's one of the things I've, I've really liked over the uh, <laughs> thirty years of playing Rainbow Warriors. I find I almost have this forced on me sometimes with my um, guard with the Medusa and Fibrogen first, because more often than not, whenever I end up playing a game with my guard versus any other sort of Imperial force, 
it feels like my guard are the ones who must clearly be the heretics in the scenario. Because why why would the ultramarines be the heretics? Why would the, you know, custodes? So it yeah. must be that apparently this is some rogue element of the Medusa 501st or there's been some, like, you know, misdeed that's been laid at their regiment's feet and uh, they're yeah. now being punished for it even though they might not be responsible. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, I think the last time I did it, we had a large... Um, Christmas game a couple of years ago at our club we had eight 40k players playing on a uh, 12 by 6 board um, for, for five or six hours I think we were playing for and, and me and another one of the admins Mike um, set up the scenario so we, we made the scenario public but we gave everybody a secret mission and um, oh, that's a so some idea. people had to some people had to get into the city quickly and get a piece of information and get out. I think one of the word bearers forces did. And it was generally chaos and aliens versus uh, imperial loyalists. So um, on the chaos side, uh, we I think we had orcs and we had uh, uh, sorry word bearers as I've just said. Um, I can't remember them all now, but there was certainly Mike the other admin had uh, had his uh, Raven Guard. Uh, and we said that's odd <laughs> and we said no 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 it's, not, it's fine we just need somebody to balance the players out and everybody went well that's okay so we didn't really try and tell it in the story in quite that way but on my side I, I was playing with my rainbow warriors we got um, blood angels we got um, uh, some space wolves I think there were as well um, I think there was another one or two armies as well and it was all balanced out but at the secret mission that Mike and myself had given each other, we were both secretly Alpha Legion traitors. <laughs> so we both held back, let the others come forward and engage, while we were protecting the, the, the back zone with the nine-inch bubbles to make sure people couldn't uh, drop pod in and all that kind of stuff, which everybody agreed was a good idea, we should do that. <laughs> and then turn three, we turned traitor and then shot them in the back, both of us. And that, like, you, know, <laughs> you, went, you went full list of that. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, you know it made for an incredibly confused, fantastically uh, joyous game where everybody was then. Because a couple of people were starting to get a little bit disengaged, but at that point everybody refocused again, and it was suddenly for the rest of the day it was uh, what we're going to do about how we've been attacked from both sides, how we deal with all the rainbow warriors behind us, and uh, you know all that kind of thing was. Uh, it made great for for a great choice. So sometimes it's it's good to choose to to let your own forces uh, go to the dark side occasionally. <laughs> But I guess I've I've only really talked about one of the armies that I've got, haven't I? <laughs> well, g give us a quick list of some of your other uh, feature armies. Yeah, so I, I've also got uh, Dark Angels, uh, mostly Greenwing, uh, with a few Deathwing Terminators. All loyalist traitors. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows which side they're on. I love my Dark Angels, and I've got uh, I've got them primed. I've not painted them yet. They're not quite on the paint garrison, but I've got a unit of uh, assembled and primed. Uh, Fallen with Cypher ready to go that I picked up in the last edition, and I uh, they were a nice build. I'll, I'll come back to them another time, I'm sure. But I, I enjoy building those guys. Um, I've got some Space Wolves. I've got quite, quite a number of Space Wolves, um, and I quite enjoy the the random silliness of Space Wolves. I know some people get very, very serious about Space Wolves, and I, I completely respect that. But one of the things I I do like about them is is some of the um, some of the bits that seem a little bit more comical. The, the space will sometimes, for me, uh, especially, have a very 
much in appearance are the similar to second edition orcs where where there's a, a comic side that comes through and they're they're very characterful uh, in their own way which is not always very space marine or imperial <laughs> but um the, the obvious one at the moment is is riding into battle on the the back of a large uh, um wolf from the wolf yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, which is I, I I know it's a very a figure that uh, and and a unit that that has is loved and hated, but I I, I love it. I quite like um, when you see Space Wolves portrayed in the very bombastic sort of like drunken adventurer sort of persona that they occasionally have. Absolutely, the uh, the D and D barbarian. Type yeah, basically. Of, uh, like I I do think that is a. I guess for the 40k universe, a more comical aspect to a space marine. But I also think that it's quite entertaining, you know, and lighthearted, but without being too silly. I don't know how to describe it, really. But, you know, when you see them just, like, getting ready and joyous for battle and, you know, telling great tales of the things that they've done and telling all these extravagant stories about what they're going to do to the enemies when they get there... Uh, absolutely, and and again, it's the storytelling. It's giving the 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 space the individual space falls. Even though we we have both described it as a slightly comic side, what it actually is is depth of character. Mm. Because quite all too often, space marines can be one-dimensional figures that are bred for battle and go to war and are very serious and pious otherwise. Uh, and as I'm sure in real life, space marines would be like that. Um, some of them. I remember once I was. Um listening to a like a short audio drama that was a death watch one so obviously all the different members of the squad were different chapters um yeah and there was this um there was this real camaraderie sort of uh between two of them one of them was a space wolf but the other one um was a not a black shield but he he kept his chapter secret like he didn't right. the other members of the squad didn't know where he originally hailed from um, and the entire time that throughout this like story where they're purging gene stealers from a space wolf or whatever, the space wolf is trying to guess what chapter he's from and he's like really um, dour and like doesn't want to talk about it and it's like he's almost like cursed, burdened, past and all the rest of it and the space wolf's just poking fun at him about it at every opportunity. Yeah. Just saying like, you know, oh, you're not one of these pious Templars, are you? You know, like, oh, maybe... Maybe you're a crimson fist who never quite got over um, the, uh, the the you know, the loss of the it. Attack on yeah, the attack on Maybe it's a little bit dour about that. Mm. And yeah, at one point he actually says, oh, "You're not one of those rainbow warriors, are you?" <laughs> yeah, I and remember so, that's about the only recent mention of uh, rainbow yeah, warriors in canon. I think. Yeah, because he's like, "Hmm, it must be something embarrassing, and that's why you don't want to tell me." <laughs> Yeah, when you see my pictures of my main boys, you might agree that they're embarrassing. <laughs> some some of those paint jobs are thirty years old. <laughs> but that's the kind of sort of like your jovial side to the space wolf that I think comes across really well, but you don't see too often. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, as we were talking about that, I was you you mentioned that uh, um, Death Watch novel. Uh, what was in my mind was Dark Imperium with a primary so all from different uh, gene seed lines. Uh, or, or beholden to different Primarchs, but fighting together as uh, what's the term? Is it? It's not grey shields, is it? In the um, um, in the grey armor before they become. It might be grey uh, shields. I mean, I know that they're called. They're known as the um, the unnumbered sons. But I think that's right. But they were fighting together in mixed squads. Yeah, uh, I think the squads were grey shields. 
yeah, across Legion lines. Yeah. And uh, that, that same that same depth of cam- character and camaraderie came out in Dark Imperium. Uh, I I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, so, Space Wolves, yeah, I've got uh, plenty of them. Black Templars, I've got a Black Templar army um, that's uh, fun fun to deploy every now and again when I'm serious and just want to hit things. Or want blob squads of Marines, that's always uh, fun with Black Templars. Uh, I've painted Crimson Fist, it was something I've been meaning for years and years to do, and a couple of years ago I just sat down and said, right, I'm going to do this. And uh, so I've got a good Crimson Fist uh, squad, uh, squad, army, army together. Um, I've got a being of such vintage, you would probably expect me to have a squat army, and indeed I do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got uh, Rainbow a Warriors and points. squats. Like you, you really yeah, have found some treasures in those Aladdin gives, haven't you? Absolutely, and uh, that I do, I've always liked a space dwarf. Uh, when I was playing Warhammer Fantasy, uh, especially Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, I, I, I had a very strong hankering for uh, playing dwarves and dwarf characters. So that that led forward into 40k quite well. And, and clearly, as I've already said, my first game was epic and space marine i like that that brother against brother warfare and then when i discovered you could have space dwarves in epic as well which were even more fun to paint as squats of four millimeters tall in epic <laughs> um yes i have got i've got a 40k epic army a, squ- a squat army as well as an epic one um, i've got a couple of different imperial guard uh, armies that you can mix together one that's based around a couple of uh, shadow swords and a whole lot of limerus that one's that's one of the ones that's not really finished at the moment. That's that's a bit half painted and half built. Um, and I've got a non-tank Imperial Guard army as well. One of the things I've been trying to build for many many years is I like the idea of doing it. You you said you got one regiment of Imperial Guard and they're all the same guys, right? Uh, currently, yes. Yeah. So I, I quite like the idea of building a regiment out of the ragtag units that are left when uh, other regiments are destroyed. So a regiment's wiped out except for two or three squads, or one squad, or maybe even one man. And they, they, they're they going to do something with them, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in my army, they fold them all together in another regiment. So the idea is that I'd have, like, a, a couple of uh, squads of uh, Mordian Iron Guard and maybe one squad of Valhallans and maybe a couple of squads of Cadians, uh, or maybe I've painted them as something different. I'm slowly working my way through those, uh, building those things up um, so that I've got, like, a ragtag uh, mixed mob. I'm hoping to mix in some uh, some Necromunda figures to make guardmen and things like that to make it quite eclectic. I think... Um... I, I really want to get some Orlock gangers at some point to turn into guardsmen. Yeah. I think they'd be perfect to yeah. use as either veterans or conscripts. I just can't quite decide which end of the scale I think I want them as. Yeah, you could go either way. Or get two squads. <laughs> two different things with them. <laughs> yeah, uh, like with my guys, um, their premise is more they're a very morbid regiment because they yeah. just expect turnover. So while it's probably uncommon for an actual squad or a platoon to actually be wiped out, the members of that squad or platoon will change on almost every battle. You know, yeah. as people get killed off, new people get drafted in to fill the squads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, the, the the basic idea with mine is that that that's not happened. When the the count gets too low, they don't do that. They just start throwing them together, yeah. throwing them into a, a regiment that's good, the next one that's going to be on the front lines to be wiped out anyway, right? Um, so what else have I got? Let me have a think. Um, I've got lots of orcs. I um, my sister went through a forty k phase. She's a really good artist, and uh, she still knows about it. But she's she's more into other things these days. So I started the nucleus of a forty k force uh, of orc force from her, and. Um, 
and then I, I tend to pick up oaks over the time. So oaks is one of the ones I, I don't really have painted, but um, I don't know many fully painted oak armies to be honest. But just the number. <laughs> Tell me about it. Field. Like I'm getting there. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. But um, one of the, the things that's really I'm starting to get interested in doing my oaks again is these uh, the the advent of contrast paints. Um, I think probably we'll pick up on contrast paints later. Uh, but I. I think that's going to be a way I can quickly field large numbers of painted oaks, even if they're not painted to a terribly high standard, because it's, it's difficult to do that with contrast paints. But um, uh, they certainly get something coloured on the tabletop that look reasonable fairly quickly. Oh, been reading the Vigilus books quite recently. I'm just about to start uh, start assembling. I have been assembling. I'm just about to start painting uh, Chaos Space Marines for the first time, really, uh, in the form of Black Legion. I've always liked the idea of renegade marines, as we touched on with the Rainbow Warriors and Dark Angels earlier. Uh, <laughs> marines that turn from the Emperor and go and do their own thing. And and Black Legion is a little bit the Chaos version of that. They'll accept someone who your pledges to them. I mean, they're full-on Chaos rather than renegades, but um, they do have that... Uh, of course, they're based around the, the Sons of Horus, but they, they, they do have that um, uh, slightly random aspect. Not random, that's the wrong word. They do take in any warband that will pledge to them. Right? Yes. So you can get a, yeah. a, a much wider mix of units and still remain fluffy with them. Yeah, they're um they are very much a a warband, like a Grand Alliance sort of thing, you know. Everyone owes fealty and oaths to Abaddon. Um and he calls it them in when he needs them, sort of thing, you know. So it's not such a strict legion structure, it's more anyone can sort of like you say, join the Black Legion. That's why it is the Legion. Absolutely, and that, that it also I am quite appealing for the the hobby opportunities there. I'll start with the core of, of your basic black and gold guys, but um, it, it gives more opportunity to if I want to put some berserkers in. They've got a lot of red and a bit of black and gold. Um, you you can keep a uniformity of the army, but also we have plenty of different options into to what we're doing with them. Well, it sounds like you've certainly got a very vast range of uh, hobby experience, to be sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've, uh, I enjoy myself, shall we say. <laughs> which, which is perfect. Um, so, with all that in mind, if you yourself were to have your own data sheet in the game today, what warlord trait do you feel you would have? Yeah, that's always a hard one, right? I, uh, you gave me a preview that you were going to ask me this question, so I, <laughs> I've had to spend some time thinking on about this. But I finally settle on one, and I think it will be a variation of, uh, of I think it's Warlord Trait 6 in the Chaos Space Marine uh, book, which is Exalted Champion, except that I would be an Exalted Champion of Nuffle. <laughs> uh, Nuffle. Nuffle is the Chaos God of Dice and Chance in the Blood Bowl universe. He's the guy, when you're trying to go for it in the end zone, he's the guy that makes sure you fall on your bum instead of uh, scoring a touchdown. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that, when you've got a three-inch charge, you roll snake eyes. And, and he intervenes with my dice and, and makes sure that happens. When you need ones, you get ones. When you need sixes, you get sixes. Sorry, when you need ones, you get sixes. When you need sixes, you get ones. And um, I think I, I do over my whole... I'm not the worst... Uh, I'm not the unluckiest person I've ever come across uh, in my gaming career. Certainly one of the lads I play with Blood Bowl with at the moment is uh, definitely much more unlucky than I am. But I, um, I've i had enough of my fair share of luck that I, uh, I'm i quite certain that I'm an exalted champion of Nuffle. <laughs> so how would that manifest in the game? What would the effects of being an exalted champion of Nuffle be? Oh, it, you know, every... Uh, 
one in six sixes turns into a one automatically, I think. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can never win a, um, uh, a roll-off at the beginning to take control of the battle. Ooh, how about something like a turnover mechanic? <laughs> Yeah, turnover mechanic. Yes, <laughs> I think you've got it there. I think that's what oh, we need to. I had a role. suggestion uh, for you, and I was thinking, like, given like the sheer vast range of armies you have, and even like sub factions within armies, I feel I yeah. feel like you should probably have something like a grand warlord like title or something where you like you were to get plus one attack for like every different faction keyword unit within six inches of you. Uh, ultimately unbound. Yeah, yeah. Old, un, unbound. Well, you can't, general or something like that. Yeah, you can't have faction keyword appearing more than once in your whole army. Yeah. <laughs> different faction keyword. Yeah, that'd be a good different would. one. I guess. I guess if I had a data sheet, we'd be trying to generate three to six uh, warlord traits anyway. So we'll put that one on the list. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that is a. To be honest, a very brief introduction to yourself and uh, the many, many experiences you've had in the hobby over the years. So uh, I'm sure we'll look forward to learning much more about you. And it'll be great to uh, get you involved and listen to your input and all the things we're going to talk about on the shows moving forward. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, perfect. So, um, with instructions done, um, I think we could move on now to our paint station garrisons. Right, guys, we're back, and uh, this is the Paint Station Garrison. So I think we heard a fair bit just there from Dave and everything he's been up to <laughs> in the past, you know. For yeah, sorry about that. 30, 30 I'll let you have a talk years. for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we'll start with uh, my own Paint Station Garrison. Now, it has been a bit longer since the last show than I would typically like it to be, so the upshot of this is that I've got lots of hobby done <laughs> since then, which is just great. So that's good. Uh, from my previous sort of like commitments, I did complete that second piece of Death World forest scenery. Uh, I was gutted that I didn't quite get it done in time for, for the garrison on the second episode, but it's done. And actually, to be honest, I've almost forgotten about it now because it feels like ages ago <laughs> when I actually got that finished. Uh, but you can see that now over on the Facebook group. Um, I also completed some scrapyard scatter terrain um, for my table because when I get a chance to do hobby at home I kind of like to try and work on terrain pieces because I, I get a chance to uh, work on squads and units and characters and stuff every day when I'm at work I actually spend like my lunch hour painting um, yeah, that's nice if you can get that done. yeah it's, nice. it's really it really helps me get a lot of progress in so I can do smaller units at work so when I get a chance to do some hobby time at home I prefer to work on bigger things and I'm really trying to amp up my terrain collection. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd finished these um, these like scatter pieces of scrapyard terrain. So what they actually are is they're taken from the Orc Mech Boy Workshop kit, and I've Perfect. basically deorkified them. So how much effort did that take? Because a lot of those, uh, <laughs> um, the I, I nearly said Gorkamorka. What's the proper name for it now? Speed freaks. The the speed freak stuff is quite orky. Did that take a lot of work, Tony? It's not actually too bad because, to be honest, the um, 
so chunks of the barricade are meant to be built up of like some of the armor plates and sections from the range of new orc vehicles um but most of them with the exception of the scrap jet when the parts are just broken down individually they just look like parts of like cargo vehicles you know civilian vehicles uh, trucks whatever just they look quite ramshackle but not orky ramshackle they just look like civilian-esque vehicles um or like low-grade military um the main thing was just covering or taking off the orc cliffs that are on some of the panels okay um and i think they work quite well um they look nice for like ground level barricades and walls and they're also going to be perfect for Necromunda, because I think that was part of the aim I wanted to, them to sort of function for, was 3D Necromunda boards. So they look like something you might find in the Underhive. So do you use them as alternate barriers in... Do you play on the, the 2D Necromunda or the 3D Necromunda, Tony? I play on both. Okay, so they, 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 well, they'd fit in for both really anyway, wouldn't they? But they would. Yeah, I can see how that would work really well. Um, but at the same time also, they just work really well as, like, ground level barricades in 40k um, so I'm actually really pleased with those uh, they say they got they very much got like a rust treatment to be all uh, muckied up and muddied and just generally look like a scrapyard because I wanted it to look like um, pretty much exactly that like a it, like a little imperial refuge uh, not refuge, refuse site or like scrapyard basically because yeah. um, I've even got the like the workbench and the crane that comes in the mech shop and again once deoccupied it just looks like a sort of crude industrial crane so um, I haven't got that piece finished though yet that's actually part of the riser ruins that I'm still working on Have you left in place the, the little um, uh, nod to the gamer that's on the bench there in that uh, in that set? Yes the, uh, the mold line remover the mold line remover, that's right. I, I really like those kind of little detail in these kind of terrain pieces. They're brilliant, aren't they? Um, it actually also comes with a pair of mech boy scale power tools. So it comes with like a drill and a power saw that are obviously to scale with an orc. Um, but I am totally planning on using them for converted weapons by Goliath gangs in Necromunda. Yeah, that worked nicely. Goliaths are more or less the same size as the orcs anyway, right? More or less. I, I, I can quite imagine that you could use some of the Goliaths uh, in an orc army and vice versa. Use orc bits for, for Goliaths and Necromunda. I, I think they'd be perfect walls to use as diggers if ever you wanted. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's my fault for mentioning Gork and <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, and then on top of that, I did also, um, I finished an Escher Jew that I needed to add to my Escher Kang for the campaign I'm currently in. But on 40k stuff, I finished my first orc truck. Which has actually that's the blue one you posted up, right? Yes, it's been quite well received actually on like um, Instagram and stuff. People have been really enjoying it because it's um, one of my trucks that's converted up from an Imperial Torox. Yes, yes. Because um, obviously, being Death Skulls, like basically every vehicle I have is converted out of some sort of Imperial looted vehicle. Yeah, that's nice. Like, they still very much fit their roles. Like, you know, the trucks are clearly trucks. That's what they are. But yeah. they're built out of Torixes and one um, uh, Goliath rock grinder. I was going to ask if you were tempted by using those. <laughs> I've got one. That, that's what is currently my pin station because it is the second truck that I'm working on. 
Do you make all your uh, converted orc vehicles blue? Uh, yes, because I, I play with Deskulls. Because you have Deskulls. Yeah, so everything is covered in blue paint, because it is lucky. Uh, as yeah. has been proven many a time when I've been playing. Well, one of my favourite things that's happened so far to date with one of my orc trucks was um, it got successfully wounded by two last cannon rounds from like a Devastator squad. Um, and then being Deskulls, I passed the six up in bun for one of them. Um, he rolled his damage for the second one and caused five damage. Um, but because it's an orc truck, it's got the ramshackle rule. So whenever it suffers damage, if you roll, you roll a dice on a six, it reduces the damage to one. Okay. So I rolled for that and I rolled a six. So he, he, he <laughs> went from having two successful last cannon hits to causing one damage. <laughs> that's, that's, that's lucky for the death. That is a very lucky movement. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm pleased that that's painted now. As I say, I'm currently working on the second truck, which is the looted Goliath. And um, at, at some point, I'm going to get my hands on that new um, Admech transport, and I'm going to loot one of those as well. Uh, the one that looks like a D-Day landing craft? Yes. What I'm thinking I'm going to do is I'm going to take the that hovercraft um, skirt off on, on the bottom and put like wheels and tracks on it. Because the orcs have obviously broken the, like, the hovercraft part of it when they've uh, stolen it, but they've just stuck some wheels on it and made it work again. Yeah, no, no, that sounds really cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I uh, I do like that model. I you know some I like it. Like the fact that the, the yeah, yeah that these things are mirrored on on um, sometimes look like real life things, but I, I I quite like that. It works quite well, and I quite like that idea of Admech with with hovercraft parts because when they're described in books. They they're almost always got some different form of locomotion from the last tech priest that you talked to. So having them having hovercraft for deploying the Skitari is absolutely yeah, makes sense to me. I think it's brilliant. Um, so yeah, and then uh, I did actually also finish uh, Warboss Sagdreg Ironhide himself. I have not yet posted uh, finished pictures of him because uh, I only finished him the other day, but. I've been posting some like in progress pictures of him, and people have been in, really enjoying those as well. So they've been in the Facebook group and over on my um, Twitter page and stuff. Uh, Twitter feed. Yeah, you got some lovely bust on him. If uh, for those that have not seen on the Facebook group uh, or on Instagram, you, you got some lovely rust effects on uh, on your man. Well, I'm quite pleased with the way that I've got the rust down now. I think for my death skulls, um, making it look like you know it's. It's not well kept. It's orc armor, yep. but not looking like it's literally falling apart from rust. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's functional, just it's still functional. Yeah. Yeah. Functional, just not well taken care of. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, I'm really pleased with um, him being finished. I'll definitely make sure to get some pictures up of him very soon. Um, and then on. Things that I'm currently on with. So, like I said, I'm, the main thing I'm working on at work at the moment is the um, the second orc truck, and I'm hoping I'll probably have that done probably by the next show. Um, otherwise, right now, I'm actually working on my Gorkonaut because having realised that he's a bit of a big boy and he's not going to get in my uh, work bag, <laughs> no, uh, he's, he's not <laughs> going to be getting painted at work, so I might as well paint him when I have some time at home. So I think he's going to be overseeing the garrison for a while because I'm not going to get much chance to work on him. But when I do, I'll be doing a bit more here and a bit more there. 
Yeah, he'll be overseeing the garrison from a very high height, right? Mm. <laughs> it's a great model. I, I have one of the Gorkonauts. I honestly have not painted yet, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing yours, Tony. Um, I'm looking forward to pay, uh, well rusting up the armor on him. Like I actually think I find doing the like the scrap, uh, the scrapped edges and the rust is actually one of my favorite parts about painting my orc vehicles at the moment. So I'm really looking forward to it. Do you want to share what technique you use for doing that, Tony? Yeah, so to be honest, it's actually uh, the technique that they uh, showcased over on Warhammer TV on YouTube. Um, okay. There's a tutorial video for painting um, Def's... I think it's for painting a Death Skull knob, is that the actual right. video. But obviously within that, there's a bit where they talk about how to do the armor plates. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I use uh, McCrag Blue as my base. Uh, be, primarily because that's the spray paint that you can get from GW. So I yeah. actually base my models in the McCrag Blue. But I also use that as the primary colour for the armor plating. Um, and then I use what... I use the Gulliman Blue Glaze, which has recently just been discontinued as my next layer for them. Okay. So thankfully, I've got a stock of them, but I also believe there will be a... Um, a good contrast equivalent uh, from the new range, but I haven't had a chance to discover which one that would be yet because I haven't needed to find out yet. So yeah, if you want to replicate it, basically a blue glaze or wash or equivalent, but something that sort of keeps the the brightness of the colour not really dulling it down. Um, right, you don't want too much black in that kind of glaze. No, I originally tried it with the Drakenhof blue wash, and it like really dulled it down far too much. It, I didn't like it, so that's why I actually went with the glaze, even though I originally thought that was going to be too bright. I don't think it is. I think it. No, no, it comes out really. Yeah, well. I think it works nicely for that sort of garish orc coloring, where they clearly they've painted it with you know some bright blue paint, but then once yep. you apply the weathering, it brings it back down. So the weathering technique is basically two stages. One, you use um, Monfang Brown and you really, really water it down. Like I, I take my palette and I basically, you know, I, I put on um, some wet paint and then I just almost even pour a little bit of water from my water pot onto the palette with it and I just kind of blend them together so that I've just more or less got this really brown water. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm practically making Monfang Brown into a wash. Okay. Like it probably is about a five to one ratio of water to paint. Um, now I take that and basically you do what you would call edge highlighting with it, but just really roughly. Like, you know, you, you're not trying to create a smooth straight line, but you're only going around the edges and the highlights. You're not just yes. doing the entire panel. And you let that sort of flow and dictate its own coverage because that is what makes it look like natural rusting or scratching and battle damage so that once that's dry you then go back around and you do a very sort of light dry brush with lead belcher or whatever metallic you prefer but Mm -hmm. when you're doing that you only dry brush over areas where the Monfang brown wash has settled so that you end up with 
uh, sort of like a, a slight transition because you'll have your blue armor panel, then the edges of that will have the Mornfang wash, and then within the border of the Mornfang wash, you'll then have the lead voucher dry brush. And it just shows that little bit of, you know, edge metal that's not being rusted up. It's got a little bit of sharpness poking out. Yes. Uh, and gives you that realistic effect. Yeah, and it looks really nice and it's dead simple to do, you know. But it's funny how it feels so much like your traditional edge highlighting stage on most other models. It's just that because it's an orky model, you don't want smooth edges. You want these rough, scratchy edges. Yeah, I, I must admit, I do... Well, Tell you about my, I did something similar with my Blood Bowl Goblins, but we'll wait for my paint station before I get well, to Well, we might as well jump into it now, because that's everything of mine. Like, you know, basically the okay. things I'm working on now are just that Goliath truck and the Gorgonaut. Yeah, uh, no, that's great. It's, it's really good to hear what people, other people are working on. I'm always uh, fascinated to listen. Uh, but in terms of myself, I mean, I've not I've not had a previous paint station garrison, so uh, some of the things that I've, I've been... I've finished quite a lot of stuff recently, uh, including some Blood Bowl Goblins uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, I, I play uh, quite a lot of Blood Bowl. I attend one tournament every year up in York and uh, play quite a lot in the League of the Club. So not quite 40k, but it's, it's one of the other games I play. And uh, I've been trying to finish the Goblin team. It's the new Games Workshop Goblin team, and I've got the, the uh, Ford World Star players for it. Um, but I wanted the armour to look battered, but also a bit more sporty. So not quite like your um, your Death Skull Orcs, where they're, they're embattled and they just don't maintain their armour, yeah. so it looks rusty. I wanted it to look embattled, because they're sports guys, but, but somebody's trying to keep it clean. <laughs> so I actually did it the other way around. I used a... I don't always use Games Workshop paints, I quite often use different bands. Uh, but it's something equivalent to, to the old bolt gun metal, a, a, a mid-dark grey um, sort of colour as the base. And then I used a, a red like, um, uh, what is it? it's called Vampire Red, it's from Code Arms. Um, so it's, it's a darker red, the sort of base that you might use for a Blood Angel for example. And I, because I want them to have red armour. And I, I just randomly put it on, but leaving the edge, leaving the metal around the edge, in the way that you described you the, when you add the brown, it, it makes the edge of the the plate appear to be then metallic, but the middle bit is, is red for me, the middle bit is blue for you. And then I actually washed it with a, um, a burnt umber acrylic ink, an artist's ink, and the whole thing just kind of becomes a little bit more vibrant. Some of the brown goes into places and leaves it a little bit rusty, uh, but it all still looks metallicized, even with the red uh, over the metal, still still lets some of the metallic through. Um, so you get this kind of combination of um, vibrant colour in a sports sort of feel. Some of the edge bits coming out, but also the paint's obviously chipped and, and battered and not as well maintained as you like. So uh, achieving a similar effect for a different purpose with a slightly different focus and, and using a similar, almost an inverse technique to what you described. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's that's why it rang a bell. <laughs> so uh, so I've, I've nearly finished those. I've only got about four models left to go on my... Uh, or, Goblin uh, army. I've got both trolls that I need to finish. Um, the hooligan is not quite finished, and and the pogoer, uh, but everybody else is is done and, and finished uh, recently. I've also uh, in the last uh, month I've changed the way I've been approaching my painting. So um, I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning uh, one of your co-hosts uh, from another podcast, also oh, runs a yeah. Facebook group. Go for it. Tom Carter runs the. Uh, 
Fade Paintbrush Hobby Group, and I've been been a member of that for a while. Uh, and the purpose of that is about hobby progress. So it's about uh, trying to commit to get stuff done, uh, and then showing the progress you make. Because um, for some of us, we like to see. Uh, it's, it's inspiring to see what other people have done, what achievements they've made, how far they got far forward in, in painting their miniatures, getting them on the table, uh, and getting getting things painted up and what they look like. So I've been uh, I may, I've changed the way I've been um, I've changed the way I've been hobbying so that I uh, try and do a bit every night if I can. Now there's, there's some nights you can't; it's just impossible. Um, I've got kids, I'm married, and I've got a job, and stuff happens sometimes, right? No, definitely. Uh, and you just can't. You can't hobby every night, but if you can only hobby for half an hour, or some days you get three hours in, um, but you do what you can when you can. And I found over the last, well, in the last calendar month, I managed to finish 50 miniatures, which is, is far more than I've ever finished in one month before in my life. And it's just something, something that seems to have really come together for me. Uh, but the other thing that's come up for me that's, that's really helped are the new contrast paints. And, and I know they're a bit, um, there are different views on them. I, I don't see them as a, a panacea, a cure, for every, a cure for everything. I tried them uh, when I attended the UK Games Expo with my family. My girls are not really big into a hobby, but they like to paint a, uh, a toy soldier every now and again, as they call them. <laughs> so we we sat down and we used the new contrast paints, and they enjoyed using them. And I thought they were brilliant. I, I just did a test piece on a, a Death Guard with lots of random different colours on it just to see how they worked. And I really like what they're doing. They they gave me they give us that that wash type glaze type experience, but with that depth of colour. So if you put it on more than once, um, you, you do get a deeper colour with them. I mean, a better artist than me might be able to win painting prizes with uh, just using contrast paints. I don't think I'd even try. But what they give me is the ability to put down a base colour really quickly that's effective it's sort of semi self-shading i'm sure a lot of time in the future when i'm using them i'll need is using the, a lot more traditional paints over the top of them a lot of other techniques that we usually use as well when we're painting to get us what we need um so they're not they're not the only tool that you can use it's just one more tool in the box and one that i really like yeah i think they're a brilliant extra little tool i've not had chance to actually get hands on with them myself yet but i think that using them as an extra tool in the toolbox seems to be the best way that the majority of hobbyists are going to get value out of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And unless you've got a very particular scheme in mind that you want to uh, paint with them, I, d I don't think you're going to be able to get that. Although having said that, I did... Uh, one of my friends at the club, Garth, decided that he wanted to buy the Soul Wars box, partly because he's been playing a lot of Age of Sigmar, and uh, his lad wanted the... Um, uh, Sigmarines, that's not the right word. Uh, Stormcast. Stormcast, thank you yeah. very much, Tony. <laughs> uh, he wanted the Stormcast to, to set up and paint so he could play against uh, the Flash Eater Courts that Garth himself has got already. Uh, but he didn't know what to do with the Night Haunt, and I, I looked at the Night Haunt, and he put it up on our club Facebook group and said, anybody interested in these? And I said, I'll have them. Because I could just see they, they're not going to lead a lot, and they're going to be perfect for testing out the contrast paints for me. And they were. I painted the whole lot in, in 10 days. Um, so whatever that is, uh, 20 chain rasps and uh, five of the glaive, uh, glaive wardens. I mean, it's just impressive that that's possible, you know. Yeah, I, I, I was just sat there stunned going, let me just work that out. I've spent, you know, 15 minutes a miniature on these. How has that happened? <laughs> and uh, I found myself quite stunned by when you don't need much else. And, and they weren't pure contrast paints. To get the metallics, I, I did a black, I did the back template black and then dry brushed over with... Um, 
with the gunmetal um, to get that sort of irony chain effect um, to come out. But um, yeah, the, the speed of painting them up was fantastic. So I've <laughs> I've recently played a game of Age of Sigma with them when I didn't really intend that was what the purpose was, but um, <laughs> they were all painted, and it's good to to play a fully painted games on the tabletop whenever you can. Um, but one of the other things I'd seen that I wanted to do with them is it seemed like a really good thing for painting the miniatures from a board game. A lot of people online, especially in the board games community, had talked about using them in that kind of way as well. And I thought, well, I've got some of those. And I got I got home from the uh, the expo and I looked at my computer desk and there, sat there, and be sat there probably for five years, was an old takeaway tub full of uh, Terminators and Gene Stealers from Second Edition Space Hulk. And I thought they'll do. <laughs> so I, I've recently finished a, a Terminator squad of five Blood Angels and I've nearly finished the last five of the 20 Gene Stealers that were in the box as well. So, I, I've thought almost sure the exact same thing because I've got um, the, I guess what would be classed as the second edition Space Hulk box and I've, I've yes, never got around. The dark blue one. Um, well, the, the first release of the current iteration if that makes sense. So the one with the one okay. with the blood angels, um, but like, I, I've got the gene stealers in that box sat there, and obviously they're just in the purple plastic. And I've been very tempted to stick them on some forty k bases and get them painted with contrast paints, so that I can use them in narrative games as like the gene stealer infestations. Yes. You know, because I've got those models right there, and contrast will be an opportunity to go. Well, these are basically playing pieces for me. That they're like terrain, you know, but I can get them knocked out with contrast paints, and I think that's something that I'm gonna look to do in the future. Yeah, I had exactly the same thought, and and they have come together really nicely. Uh, it's worked really well. That's good to know. Um, Sounds like you've been doing plenty. Yeah, I, I have managed to get a load done, so I'm sure there's one or two of those you'll cut out in the edit. <laughs> so then, yeah, that's um, that's our latest paint station garrison. Um, if you've got yourself a, a bunch of units that have been sat on your paint station for too long, then perhaps this is the motivation you need to get them painted. And we would love to see them in the Narrative One Gamer Facebook group. So definitely any regiments or units that are graduating from their garrison, we want to see them. That works in progress as well, right? Uh, oh yeah, of course, yeah. Works in progress as well, you know. We want to see everything. We want to see all the, the hobby yeah. goodness from uh, our listeners. That's right. And especially if uh, if you've got a good background to why they're there, um, I, I always find that really interesting that you've got a story behind a, a character or a unit. It's, uh, I always find it particularly engaging. Oh, yeah. Same. Um, so, speaking of uh, engaging, we will move on to Games Played next, I think. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group? at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys. And now we're on to games played. So, 
Uh, unfortunately, I've not had a chance to play any games in the Hades campaign this month because I've been very, very, very busy. Um, and in particular, trying to get the next guest for the uh, podcast sorted out. So uh, I spent a fair bit of time sourcing Dave <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> so I only managed to get him one game um, at my house with a, a friend this month. But it was a great game, I have to say. Um it was a, a seventeen fifty points game with my death skulls versus my friend's death guard, and I was glad that I was actually able to introduce him to, I, I guess, a more narrative game than he sort of played before, really, because he's he's only played uh, about six games of forty k, but he's already like you know. Um, hooked. Yeah, already hooked, <laughs> and he's and he's picked it up really quickly. So he know, he knows what he's doing, you know. Um, and all yeah. the games he's played to date have all been um, Maelstrom of War games, which I think is you know a, a great way to you know learn to play the game really. Um, yep. But I introduced him to generating a scenario with the open war cards that you can get from the Games Workshop okay. web store. I don't know if you've ever seen or played with these yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I quite like them because they, as we talked about, this is a narrative wargamer podcast, right? So adding a little bit of flavour to a story, uh, to a game, is is a brilliant thing. I love it, and uh, I think I think playing those uh, those first few scenarios in the in the way that he has is good. But you know, get him get him hooked on the story as quickly as possible. Oh today. yeah, like uh, I think there's um, plenty of fun ways you can use those open war cards. So I, I was just showing him um, a couple of the different ways that there are to generate scenarios and play games outside of things just like Eternal War and Milstrom. Um, yeah. And he, he just really liked the idea these open war cards. So I said, well, why do we play one then? You know, like, why do we just generate a mission now and we'll play it and that'd be awesome. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do that. So we drew up our cards and um, we ended up with a, a lengthways deployment. So we were deploying on the, sh- yeah, the short table <laughs> edges. Yeah. With um, they they can quite often be the most fun kind of games because you have to think much harder when that happens to you. You don't usually plan for that, right? Exactly, I I think that too. Um, it did have the traditional twenty four inch no man's land in between the uh, deployments. Yeah. So you actually got quite a bit of board to play with for your deployment zones. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, the mission that we drew up was kill the courier. So the entire objective for the game is uh, at the start of the first part round, we both nominate one model that's on the battlefield in our armies, and the opponent's objective is to kill that model. Uh, that's it. First person to kill the opponent's courier wins the game. Okay, uh, golden goal sort of. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they've got something important, um, uh, important message, important artifact, important relic, whatever you know, something that needs to be taken from them and the episode to do that is to kill them <laughs> um so uh, he nominated his tallyman so the uh like the death guard character with the um abacus yep <laughs> um so, okay. so his tallyman he tried to make it as hard as possible oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know you don't want your courier getting killed he, he had him um no that's true getting protected by uh the the little trio of Death Guard that you can buy. I cannot remember what they're called, like the Blessed Brotherhood or something. You are, they've yes, got their own little data sheet and there's actually three um, Plague Marines. Yeah, it, yeah, I can't remember what they're called either. They basically acted as his bodyguards for the entire game. Like they just basically stood with him making sure that they were protecting him from ranged fire. 
um, which I thought was very thematic. You know, they were there guarding the important person who was probably enacting the ritual or whatever. But then, of course, I have a mechanised orc army. So I wasn't quite sure who realistically I wanted to be my career. And it felt like there was only really one real choice. And that was the Death Killer Wartrike. It could be any model in the army. It didn't have to be like infantry or anything like that. And at the end of the day, he's basically a a big boss man on a big bike. So I felt like he's probably going to be the one that's, you know, got the important message. Like if we were to trust anyone in this army to currently get something important back to the big boss or to the warlords or wherever we needed it, give it to the guy on on the big, massive bike. Yeah, strategic level communications are not something I immediately think of no. with, uh, <laughs> with orcs. <laughs> but you're right, that's a good way to define it, I think. Yeah, he, he can come barging in into the uh, other war boss's camp. No one's going to stop him in time. He can just drive right up to the, the war boss and uh, clonk him on the head and yep. give him the message. You know, whatever he needs. Yep. Um, so then we... We also decided to play using a um, a battle zone because this was another thing that I'd been sort of introducing him to and sort of saying like, you know, well, you know, these are cool little things you can add to your mission as well, you know, on top of what you're doing. It just represents that you're fighting in an unusual environment. So because we'd rolled to see what our mission was with the open war cards, we'd drawn the twist card uh, for a warp storm. Right. which is just an open war twist that means all psychers get plus one to cast and deny powers. But if they suffer a perils, they suffer um, an additional mortal wound on their perils. So like D3 plus one. So we thought what would be really interesting is if we used the Field of Nightmares battle zone from Vigilus Ablaze to sort of complement that and really drive home this idea that we were playing in a warp storm or like you know by a, a warp rift um and it was great it was so much fun <laughs> so just to give you an idea i'll just bring up the uh, the field of nightmares battles are now so we're playing a game where we're playing lengthways the only objective is to kill each other's courier and all psychers are getting plus one to cast deny and plus one mortal wound when they perils and, and have you got a weird boy in your army? Oh, of course I have. I have uh, good. I have good old uh, Mad Eye Snazgul. Zach <laughs> uh, Drake's personal weird boy, and uh, he he was as always a warped, and he was going toe to toe with um, a Nurgle demon prince and two uh, sorcerers. So basically, he was sort of like you know battling with sorcerers cabal of Death Guard uh, yep. psychers. Um. So we were battling in uh, a Field of Nightmares battle zone, which has its own additional rules. First of which is Living Tempest. So at the end of each psychic phase, each unit that lost one or more wounds in that phase suffers an additional mortal wound. Because basically, Uh, more more raw warp energy roaming around, smites are going to be more powerful, um, you know. But also, this means anyone who perils also suffers an extra wound because they suffered a wound in the phase. So it yeah, makes it more hazardous. Well, so actually, if you did perils, you're going to be suffering D3 plus two wounds. So perilsing was a bad idea. 
But then the main feature of the Field of Nightmares is the Warp Geist's table that you roll on at the start of each battleground. So this is meant to represent basically like demons breaking through in the, the localised region. So either they're attacking um, you know, beat, uh, the units on the battlefield or they're preying on psychers or they're just you know, doing whatever they can to sort of try and warp reality to their will. So you're fighting in literally a field of nightmares. Your reality is not stable where the battle is going on, so anything can happen. So at the beginning of each battle round, you, um, you roll d6 and consult the following table. So your potential outcomes, you've got like, um, uh, one, preventing escape. Infantry units that have the fly keyword are not considered to have that keyword. Yeah, that's a good shutdown. Some key units, right? Yeah, struggle to fall back and fire because you can't do it. Uh, two, preying on stragglers. At the end of each player's movement phase, each of that player's units that did not move and is not within one inch of enemy, enemy units suffers D3 mortal wounds. Okay. So if, if you so. don't move, you get smattered. Three, haunting the witches. In each player's psychic phase, psychers attempting to manifest powers suffer perils on a, uh, any double rather than just a double six or a double one. Okay, that's um, yeah, quite uh, unpleasant. Combined with the living tempest roll, you just got yep. <laughs> four finding their way in at the end of each player's shooting phase. Any unit that lost one or more wounds during that phase suffers D three mortal wounds. Okay, so they're just getting into uh, all that warp energy is just manifesting as part of the shooting phase as well. Yeah, so basically anything that gets harmed in the shooting phase is then going to be marked for a, smite, uh, a free smite at the end of the phase. Yeah. Uh, five, join the slaughter. At the end of each player's fight phase, each unit that is within one inch of an enemy unit suffers one mortal wound. So okay. just by being in combat, units suffer one mortal wound at the end of the fight phase. Uh, and on a six, sapping will. Uh, add D3 to each morale test taken. Roll for each test taken separately. It basically boils down to either doling out handfuls of extra mortal wounds or particularly harassing a certain unit or unit type for the turn. Yeah. So that, that was a lot of fun because... Like when you're rolling on that table at the start of the round, you don't know how much that's going to influence the round, but you know it's going to influence it a lot. You just don't know in what way. Yeah, that sounds like a really good battle zone for playing any kind of game where you want to play in an environment where that reality between uh, that that border between the reality and the warp is breaking down, and um, yeah, things are starting to come through. Not fully manifest, of course, but. Um, um, are, are affecting reality in ways that are unpleasant and, and applied to the battlefield. I, I really quite like the sound of that battle. Well. well, it then also comes with two universal stratagems that are available to um, both sides that are both just uh, one CP each and um, in order to use them you just need to have a Psyker on the battlefield your force. Uh, one of them basically means that you roll twice on the Nightmare table and apply both results for the round. Okay. Make that veil between the warp and the reality even thing. Yep. Uh, and that's just one command one point. One command point. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Make another roll on the warp guys table. Apply the result for the rest of the battle round in addition to the current result. If you roll a result that is already in effect, re roll so you get a different result. 
Yeah, I guess we can't trust any psycho. No. <laughs> but then the other stratagem uh, for one CP basically lets you manipulate the table more. So this is um, okay. Command Geists. Use this stratagem after a player makes a roll on the Warp Geist table, if there is a psycho in your army on the battlefield. You can add one or subtract one from the result to a minimum of one and a max of six. This stratagem can only be used once for each roll. Uh, if both players wish to use a stratagem, they must roll off and the winner uses the stratagem. The loser does not spend their command points for attempting to use the stratagem. So okay. basically, you've got one stratagem that adds more effects, but it's more uncontrolled effects, or you've got one stratagem that lets you try and manipulate the effects that are happening. Mm-hmm. But you're almost going to end up in a bit of a, a roll off between two sides if you both got psychers. But you need psychers to use those stratagems. Yes, because you're manipulating uh, manipulating the warp around you. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's really nice and thematic, right? I, uh, it really gives give that battle zone a, a good flavour. But how did that work for you guys? Yeah, so it was a lot of fun for us because that meant what we had was we had these two forces that were deployed in this like warp storm uh, environment and there were two key people in each force that had to be assassinated in order to win the game so in my head this very much played out as a sort of scenario where the orcs have clearly looted some important chaos artifact and we've ended up you know causing a, a warp breach we've in, invited yeah. demons onto the world because we've run off with some sacred relic or we've um, disrupted a ritual that was being enacted, and because we've messed it up, it's gone horribly wrong, and now the world's starting to be consumed by warp energy. So the Death Guard are doing their absolute best to try and kill the orc that's got this artifact and you know bring the warp back under their control. Meanwhile, the orcs are just trying to get the second shiny thing. Yeah, because the walk, Gorks don't care. They they see that as a blessing of Mork, or maybe Gorks. Yeah. And uh, more things to fight, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was brilliant. Um, it basically started out as a like a Death Guard defensive line, uh, Poxwalkers in the front, um, Plague Marines and Rhinos in the back with um, Hellbrute support, which were trying to sort of almost be like the the wall to break the tide of orcs against. Now, my tide is very much the mechanical tide of orcs. Like, I don't have any orc boys on the field at the start. I've got all truck boys and um, wagons and buggies and aircraft and all the rest of it. Um, even my, uh, like, battle wagons are looted Lehman Russes. It was a brilliant game. It was great. Um, like, the first turns were basically roaming up the field and then exchanging bullets um, so I was mostly trying to gun down Poxwalkers, or um, I blew up a Dreadnought on the first turn with my last um, bomb blaster jet, and that was fun. Um, I burnt up some Plague Marines and my Burner Bomber. His sort of first turn was a bit just sporadic fire. I think he he docked some wounds off a couple of my trucks, um, but he didn't really destroy anything because there wasn't really any important targets at that point, and. My um, Death Killer War Trike was kind of sitting in the middle of the pack. Okay, so you were keeping your guy protected just the same as he was? Yeah. Um, the other role that mine was playing was that being a Death Skull, he had the fixer-upper relic, so he basically he was a big mech. Ah, okay. So he was also right. repairing the other vehicles as they're getting damaged. 
And, um, you know, he's an orc. Like, if I wanted, the best thing I could have possibly done, really, would have just been go sit him in a corner and go, well, you're never killing this guy now because he's a character. He's in the back corner of the board and there's always going to be things closer. Yep. So you're never going to be able to target him and you're never going to reach him. But that'd be no fun. So, you know, <laughs> instead, of course, my, you know, Death Killer Wardrack is riding up alongside the rest of the convoy. He's looking to get stuck into a fight just as much as anyone else. You know, I'm not just recklessly throwing him at the Death Guard, but he's definitely going to be looking for an opportunity to have a fight. Yeah, he's still an Oak Knob, right? Yeah, he's basically like um, a, a mini war boss. Meanwhile, the Death Guard, sort of on their like second turn, they stepped forwards and they sort of popped the first Orc truck or two and started to do some damage to Orc boys. But where it really sort of came to a head was there was this huge clash in the middle of the board on turn three. So I think I had two Orc trucks, Mega Knobs, Gun Wagon, um, War Boss Sagdreg himself, Megatrack Scrapjet, um, and I think, uh, and the Mega Knobs were all basically embroiled in this massive brawl in the center of the table by the end of the turn. What had happened was I'd got a rap in his face, I'd popped rhinos, I'd forced Death Guard out into the field, I'd killed the Poxwalker screens, and then he stepped forward with a big blob of like 10 Plague Bearers and he unleashed um, the like grenade bombardment with the uh, biologist putrefier nearby so basically he's got these like mega grenades and as a result he managed to detonate two orc trucks with them so then I had all these orc boys piling out um, yep. and which then he charged into basically there was this massive brawl that sort of happened in the middle of the board and this was after um, his tallyman's kind of tried to find a safe little spot but he, again he's, he's not shying away from the fight I've killed his bodyguards at this point because I gunned them down with the Wazbomb blaster jet so he was kind of trying to hide amongst the uh, cabal of sorcerers um, waiting for the death shroud not death shroud terminators the blind lord terminators to sort of deep strike in and support him what ended up happening was blowing up these orc trucks left a, a large enough gap in my line that his winged demon prince was able to sort of hop in and dive on the war trike and it was so close he killed the war trike to the wound with his attacks i was i i got really lucky with some saves he fluffed one or two attacks and in the end he i think i had to take like five six plus saves or something and if i passed three of them miraculously he'd be alive and i, and I actually passed two of them and he killed him to the wound. And I was like, no, so close. <laughs> and I almost had got an opportunity to sort of strike first as well, you know, and, and I think I could have been quite, um, I think I could have killed that Demon Prince if I'd, if I'd had the chance to strike first. But unfortunately, he got in there and uh, the Demon Prince st stole the victory of the, uh, that day. Yeah, that's the, the games I remember best are when you come down to that that, that big duel at the end that comes down well, to like the last dice. The funny thing was that um, it came down to this sort of last duel because in the shooting phase of that turn, we'd had the uh, Warpgeist result where anything that was hurt in shooting phase suffers D3 mortal wounds at the end of it. Right, yep. And basically um, almost everything died in that shooting phase. Um, okay. 
degrading my trucks caused my trucks to be destroyed. Um, but I think they exploded, which inflicted a wound on one of my uh, war buggies, which caused that to then take wounds, and that exploded because that explodes on a four plus. Because basically, <laughs> because <laughs> so there was this chain of detonations. It was hilarious. Like I had, so I have the the burner bomber, two snaz blaster. Uh, Boom Decker Snaz wagons and a gun wagon, all of which are units that explode on a four plus. Okay. Yeah, of course. And he had um, the biologist Putrefier, who, even though he's an infantry model, explodes on like a four plus because he's got the rack of grenades on him. Um, and on top of that, I rolled a six for one of my trucks exploding, and he rolled a six for one of his dreadnoughts exploding. And there was basically like a mini mushroom cloud going off at the end of this shooting phase because everything dies and exploded, causing other things to die and explode. And I think a mushroom cloud of warp energy. Oh that. yeah, definitely. His <laughs> his blight lord terminators that came in that movement phase were dead by the end of the shooting phase, despite the fact I never targeted them. Right. Because they were caught in smites and explosions and debris and all sorts, and they just died to mortal wounds, did these Terminators. Despite the fact they're Death Guard, I think he ended up having to take um, two D... I think it was like two D6 plus D3 plus three mortal wounds on this unit <laughs> after all the explosions it was caught, because they were right in the centre of the board, sort of trying to protect the tallyman and somehow the tallyman survived it all he was just sort of on the peripheral of all the explosions and he didn't die um so after we after the war track died we decided to play out my following turn i was able to uh, deal with the demon prince um i think zag streg himself um got in there and pulled him apart <laughs> um and the Tallyman actually died to basically sp- sporadic gunfire. Like, I was able to eventually target him and I just put enough bullets into him that he, he, he killed over. So, like, it was a Death Guard victory at the end of the day because the game was supposed to end, like, as soon as my war track was killed. But we played out the, the other player turn and in that same turn, I also was able to kill his. So it was a really close game, but it was just... <laughs> like the the most pivotal moment was just everything exploding all at once all of the field. I think there was about seven exploding vehicles or units and it was it was facilitated by this uh, warp guys table in that particular turn um, just carnage just warp energy all over the place and it was amazing and hilarious and it didn't feel like the game had just been blown out because we were using some silly battlefield rules. It wasn't. It, it honestly felt like the battle zone had just created a really cinematic moment, but that moment hadn't swung the game one way or the other. It, it kind of just like literally blown it wide open. Even just tired. Yeah, it made it more intense. I mean, a lot of fun with it. Um, my weird boy perils. At one point, but actually managed to avoid his head exploding because he has the relic with a five up fill no pain. Um, 
Uh, whereas one of his sorcerers did do end up doing a super smite and destroying one of my um, buggies, but basically like killing himself in the process, basically. Yeah, that's a, I, 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 it just always seems to be the way that at least 50% of psychers go out in battles, right? Yeah. <laughs> even without the uh, even without the battles out. But it was really like uh, the first two uh, turns of the game, we were both trying to manipulate the table. Like I tried putting in two results um, and he wanted to try and manipulate down um, the dice roll that we got. So I was trying to manipulate it up. It, was, it really created like this extra little sense of... Um, like a sorceress battle going on over the battlefield. It was almost like there was two layers to it. There was the, the armies that were clashing and firing bullets, but at the same time it felt like my weird boy was really trying to just mess up the plans of the sorcerers, you know, and they were trying to direct their energies towards dealing with this weird boy that was stopping them from achieving what they wanted. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend um, anyone else out there that wants to give it a try should definitely give it a try. Yeah, having that additional feel to the game um, sounds like a really good uh, side effect to this battle zone. I guess it wouldn't work so well if you didn't have a psyker in your in both armies, right? Yeah, like this particular battle zone worked so well for us because we did both have forces with psychers, and uh, it wasn't like one person was going to be particularly getting lots of benefits and the other wasn't. Like that is one thing that you have to be sort of aware of with narrative games is that you don't want to fall into a trap of a mission that particularly heavily favours one side. You do need to just use a little bit of common sense with it as to work out whether or not it's going to feel like a game in the balance or whether or not it feels like a, a one-sided battle from the off, uh, from the start. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's, it's not fun if you, if you get that wrong. Um, and uh, I don't know whether you'd done it in advance or whether it just came out of the use of the random cards but um, if you do know what you've got in advance and you can tell it, you're less likely to not for advantage but to make sure that you're going to get a, a good balanced game out of it um, that's always for the in best. this instance we just drew the cards up randomly and we'd been talking about trying out a battle zone and given that we had this sort of like warp storm twist we thought oh, you know what this will be I really, yeah, that, that works really well with this, so we'll see how that goes. We'll just really ramp up the uh, sort of like warp storm scenario, and it was brilliant. And we had a lot of fun with it. We, we didn't think it was going to um, particularly favour one person or the other or make life difficult for either of us, and it didn't. Like, no more so one person than the other. It was just a lot of fun to use. Super. Sounds like it was a great game. It was. Uh, so, what have you been up to? What, uh, what games have you played? Yeah, as I said at the start, I um, I realised I'd not actually played 40k for 10, 12 weeks before, uh, as we started talking what we're going to talk about in this podcast. So what I pulled out is uh, just uh, a couple of games that I've played over the last uh, maybe three or four months since it's my first show uh, that, that are more interesting, got a little bit more character to them. Um, I, I don't have quite the detail that you had, <laughs> remembering <laughs> what you had, as I, I didn't make detailed notes at the time. But I mean, one of the I've been you know, playing a lot of other things, including Blood Bowl and Necromon and Kill Team and stuff. But for forty K, um one of the uh one of the first games uh this year that we played um with uh Lee from the club um was he he put started putting together some Gene Steel cult because he wanted to see how they worked, he wanted to see see how they played. And actually um because he was he was not quite proxying models, but he was using exactly those gene stealers that you were talking about earlier from Sp- um, Space Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
against my Vamba Warriors, and it was only a, a low point game, 12.50 points, so we had to make some hard decisions about uh, what fitted in and, and what didn't. But he gave us uh, two games uh, at the club night, so we could try out a couple of different things. And we, we, we did the same with the same forces, really, but we, we tried a couple of different... Uh, I think we just tried Maelstrom or War Missions, to be honest. Uh, but we wanted to see how it, how it felt, because, uh, you know, Marines against Gene Sealers is sort of a classic matchup, right? Oh, yeah. So um, the, the first game, when it came down, it, it went... Um, uh, yeah, Nuffle abandoned me. I did quite well. <laughs> <this game. laughs> um, <clears throat> it, it started out with... Uh, Lee deployed with his gene stealers at, at one end of the table. Um, it, sorry, it was uh, we were playing along the long edge, uh, the, so it wasn't a, a, a long table mission like yours. Um, and it just happened that I got my um, everything set up in the right position. When his, his gene stealer uh, leader popped up, um, he popped up into the face of withering fire from a, a whole load of terminators, or five terminators that I have. Uh, together with the uh, Devastator, so he was more or less taken out immediately that he popped up without really properly getting a chance to, to dive into close combat, which would have been terrifying for me. <laughs> was that um, the um, the Patriarch? Sorry, yes, it's the Patriarch. Um, yeah. he, he just appeared in, in the wrong place, really, and uh, just, just didn't get to grips with it. And then I'd... Uh, I had a, a couple of a packs of gene stealers coming towards me, uh, as supported by some cultists uh, that were looking to take out the, the tactical squads um, that I'd deployed in the centre of the table. And my um, terminators were able to redeploy with a teleporter uh, and take them out before they actually became a real problem for me. At which point his, his force was effectively killed. So it was uh, it was a little bit of a classic uh, space marines just standing up in the corner. Uh, battling away at all comers, all coming gene stealers until they were all gone and they all stood there going, yes, we won a victory. So that that was kind of fun for the first game. And the second game really flipped it around. Uh, my deployment uh, wasn't really as good as it should have been. Um, we had the mission where you set up with a sort of a, it was a long, it was it was the long table one, but set up with a triangular deployment zones. Oh, yes, uh, yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd sort of deployed in a triangle and I'd made the mistake of uh, I keep making the mistake <laughs> and this is me not Nuffle um, leaving a, a big patch behind me open uh, in which he popped up um, so I was immediately, you know, very quickly by the end of turn 2 or the start of turn 3 uh, heavily involved in hand-to-hand -hand combat with Gene Steelers and a Patriarch and uh, he survived with almost no losses and I, I was just taken apart so again a very similar cinematic uh, game to the first one but uh, from completely a different perspective um, and it, it really did, it was one of those games that shows uh, some of the power of the 8th edition rules to give you uh, a real narrative game that really is uh, driven by how you play rather than um, the way you um, you roll your dice or you choose your army list. There are, there are some things that you can do right and wrong on the battlefield uh, and that was, uh, I think it kind of classically went both ways for us with those two games on that night. Awesome. Um, so the second one I was going to pull out, I, a week or two after we played that one, uh, I then brought my uh, Rainbow Warriors against the club, a similar but slightly larger list, uh, I can't remember if I'm honest whether it was 1750 or 2000, um, but, but I had plenty more and I didn't quite, I had misplaced one of my vehicles, so I, I, I just put in more characters <laughs> to, to round out the list. and. Um, 
and Dan, uh, one of the lads at the club, who's, who's really uh, quite a good player, um, we were just having a fun game, really, but he managed to, to channel me all into the middle by, just by uh, sweeping up some of the squads on, on on both my left and right flank. And it just felt that the whole board compressed down from a 6x4 to a 2x4, <laughs> and all the action was in the middle. He managed to take out my Devastators fairly quickly. Uh, the Terminators were gone. Um, and before I knew it, I seemed to have more characters than anything else left. And it was before... I. I can't remember whether we it was before the fact came out about targeting characters or whether uh, we were just not aware of it at the time. But we had a lot of confusion about trying to determine whether he could we could target a character behind a character behind a character. Um, yeah. Because I had a, a tech marine and an apothecary and then a, a lieutenant um, and they were the three nearest characters before there was a squad. <laughs> um, so we got into one of those sort of uh, slightly confused discussions at, at some point and we just went you know what, this is getting silly, let's just play it. It makes sense that I can shoot him. Um, yeah. So we just played it that way because it was, we, we realised we suddenly got into that position where we, di we didn't really want to be worrying about exactly what the rules are rather than, than having fun. And I, I, my rainbow warriors got annihilated by the death guard at the end of the day. They just got completely rolled up. I made some uh, really good use of all those uh, little buffs from uh, lieutenants and, and apothecaries and... Uh, I think I had Chapter Master in there as well. If it wasn't Chapter Master, it was the Captain. Um, uh, I made really good use of all those buffs, which was one of the first times I'd really got to grips with all that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not such a good player in that regard, uh, which is one of the reasons I, uh, one of the several reasons I stay away from things like tournaments. Uh, it's because I would get annihilated every single time and not have fun. <laughs> but did, um, it, did it sort of feel like that was the first game where it, it clicked for you, that, that method yeah, of it, tradition gameplay? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, even even though you know I got completely swamped, and the story was fantastic. It was just this relentless advance of the Death Guard, just moving forward, killing stuff, moving forward, not taking a step backwards, and just wiping out the loyalist marines. Um, it, it did come down to a, 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 even though I lost heavily, it was an incredibly fun game to have with Dan. Great. Uh, well, Nakis, then we will uh, we will move on to the uh, the spotlight topic for this episode. Uh, which will be all about the different kinds of battle zones that you could use in your games of 8th edition 40k. So we'll be back with that in a minute, guys. Do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative player content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now, we are just starting out but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative player content from the Grim Dark. And we're back guys. So we're now on to our spotlight topic for the night, which is all about battle zones. Now, these are actually, um, they're, they're a piece of narrative gameplay that you can use in your games of 40k. And to be honest, 
I think more people should try them out because they're great, basically. I've played a bunch of games now with different battle zones and I've loved every single one of them. And um, I don't think enough people are talking about them because I think they're a brilliant idea that Games Workshop is putting out there. And I just, I, I think people can have a lot of fun with them. I agree completely. I think they, they had something that had a flavour and a few little rules, uh, very much like the one that you described in your, your game early, in an earlier segment of this podcast. Um, and they, they, they give a real flavour and, and increased um, increased fun for me mm. uh, around a little bit more of a, a dealing with the terrain around you rather than just assuming the battlefield is uh, benign. I mean, I think there's... Basically, they, they bring a lot to the game for only very minimal effort and investment yep. you know, to get them involved. Because I think the best time to try these out really is if you if say you regularly play lots of military missions or eternal war missions and that that's how you like to play your casual games with your friends in your local club or whatever you don't have to change that you can still play your randomized military mission you can still you know uh, draw your deck of tactics cards to for your objectives throughout the game but you can play those missions within a battle zone and then the battle zone just adds an extra layer of rules for the environment that's happening around you. Absolutely, and they're, they're a real hidden gem in the um, in the um, Vigilus books that um, many of us have bought, and a lot of people just go to the back quarter of the book and look at the, the what's the new army list, what's the new war scroll, I can, sorry, not war call, that's Age of Sigma, right? <laughs> what, are the, what are the new units I can use, what are the new rules I can use for my army, have I got something for my army in this, or have I been ignored, has my favourite army been ignored in this book? And when you do that, you're ignoring three quarters of the book. Uh, there's there's some fantastic lore. There's lots of descriptions of what's going on, and these great rules, both uh, the battle zones and, and 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 the war zone rules as well, which bring together the missions and the battle zones together, very fa- flavoured battle in, in one part of Vigilus. Yeah, uh, so you should definitely go check out your copies of Vigilus if you've got them, which I'm sure plenty of our listeners probably do, um, because like you say, I think too many people when they think of the Vigilus books, they just think about the specialist detachments and they don't even realise half this stuff is in here and the battle zones are brilliant. Like the first battle zone in the book is the Wasteland Dust Storm and it's exactly that. It's for battling on the edges of a, a growing dust storm. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's really simple because all it includes is what one, two, three, four, five extra special rules, which... Sounds like a lot, but they're all just like, you know, a couple of sentences and they create this sense of fighting in a like a dangerous wasteland dust bowl. Yeah, and this 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 description of this when I when I first was reading through the book was uh, of course this is intended, it's in the Vigilus book, but the first thing I thought of was the ash waste of Necromunda. Uh, yes. the dust storms that boil up there and uh, this this kind of dust storm could appear anywhere in, in, in the, the vast myriad of war zones in the Imperium. The one it really made me think of was um, Medusa. Okay. Where the yep. homeworld of the Iron Hands, because that's one that's it's classified as a, a death world, but actually it's mostly like uh, geothermal upheaval and stuff, and uh, the continents are constantly crashing against each other and falling apart, and you know, like mountains are rising and falling and the whole place is basically like a very sort of wastelandy 
desert world almost, but without the sand. More like, you know, barren de- uh, wasteland. Um, and if you're fighting in that sort of environment, you just have to use these handful of rules, and they're dead simple. So, yeah. like, the main one is um, the Stormfront. So at the start of the first battle round, um, the player taking the first turn nominates one of the long table edges to be north. And then in clockwise order, you, you label off all the others east, south, west. Then the players roll d6 and consult the table below to determine which battlefield edge the storm emerges from. For the first battle round, units wholly within 12 inches of that battlefield edge are considered to be within the storm. So on your d6 table, um, on a 1, it's the north edge. On a 2 to 3, it's the east edge. 4 to 5, it's the west edge. And on a 6, it's the south edge. So typically, the storm will more often than not come on from one of the short table edges. Yep. Um, I don't believe the edge changes at all um, throughout the game. Once you know which edge the storm front is on, that's it. Like, you know, so the storm is on that edge of the battlefield. But um, there's then the ebb and flow rule. So at the start of each battle round after the first, roll d6. On a 3+, plus, the range of the storm increases by 6 inches. On a 1 or a 2, the range of the storm reduces by 6 inches to a minimum of 6. Any units holding in the range of the storm are considered to be within the storm. So each battle round, the edge of the storm might encroach more onto the battlefield or less. Simple. Yep. Caught in the in the storm surge. At the start of your movement phase, any vehicle units are in your army that are within the storm and have the flyer battlefield roll suffer D3 mortal wounds. For each other unit in your army that is in the storm, roll D6 and a 4 plus it suffers one mortal wound. And the first time I played with this, um, I had two Orc Flyers on um, one edge of the board and inevitably they rolled for the table edge that the Storm was going to be coming in on. <laughs> so on my very first turn, these my uh, bomb and my uh, Daka Jet came flying in through the dust cloud and they suffered a, a D3 mortal wounds each. But they, they must have done some, like, outflanking manoeuvre and decided that the best way they were going to get the drop on this Dark Angel force was to just fly in under the cover of the storm, despite the fact it was going to be, you know, ruining their engines as they did it. And I felt like that was such an incredibly orky thing <laughs> to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but there is also some, you know, defensive measures to be in the storm. So there's the blinded by dust rule. Um, subtract one from hit rolls for shooting attacks made by units within the storm. In addition, subtract one from hit rolls for shooting attacks made by units outside the storm that target units within the storm. So basically, if you're shooting across the, the line of the storm, um, you're a one to hit. If you're shooting out or if you're shooting in. Yep. And then finally, um, shrouded by the storm, units within the storm count as being in cover. So basically, if you're shooting into or out of the storm there's a minus one to hit modifier if you're in any section of the board that is considered to be within the storm you're considered to be in cover that applies to your vehicles your infantry everything um and at the start of each round there's a a 50 percent chance that any vehicles in the storm take one mortal wound unless it's a flyer in which case uh, not flyer sorry um a flyer battlefield roll unit, so an actual like, aircraft. 
um, they'll suffer D3 moments immediately because being in a storm is a bad place to be if you're an aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does seem like a very straightforward, uh, simple set of uh, five additional balls that really does have that theme of fighting on the edge of some tricky weather, right? Yeah, and um, we played. Uh, I played a game against the Stark Angel Army once where basically two of the objectives were in the edge of the storm and I had some orc boys and some trucks and these aircraft that were sort of like skirting in and out of the storm in order to avoid being blown away by the Dark Angel weapons. But we were quite happy trying to hold these objectives. And yep. the Dark Angel player was a bit more reluctant to commit moving like his land speeders and stuff in there because it was not going to go well for them. Um, but it didn't feel like it was crippling to the game, but it added a whole extra little nuance. Like suddenly I had orc boys that were survivable because they were at minus one to be hit and were in cover. So even my mobs of 20 boys could sort of roam around in the storm and prey on any dark angels that happened to get caught in it. Yeah. And did it move a lot during the game for you? Um, it... We played four turns, if I remember correctly, and I think it, I think it extended out to twenty-four inches and then receded, which right. from the short table edge is basically about a third of the board yeah. at its like peak. But the majority of the time, it was basically just like a deployment zone's worth of distance from the short table edge. Yeah. And you know, just using something like that is a really easy way of creating story and narrative in your game just by saying let's play a mission why don't we play it in a dust storm yeah yeah and adding uh, and the story very important for us but of course adding tactical options as well uh, that aren't uh, necessarily um, unbalanced uh, across both forces but give uh, obviously with the, the old boys give you more uh, choice of what what to do with them i mean you weren't able to get out of that storm and do stuff without exposing them um Oh yeah, in the way right. that old boys are normally exposed, but to to hold back and sit back, they got that chance to to do that. They were they were holding a key objective rather than charging mindlessly towards someone just to chop them up, you know. Yeah. But if they'd been charging mindlessly, they'd have probably got blown away by some um, aggressor bolt shells. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were quite happy holding an objective in that storm. Um, yeah, it sounds like a good one. Then there's one of my personal favourites is the uh, the geothermal eruption um, battle zone, which I just think is such a clever idea, and it plays so well. Yeah, it's very similar in its its uh, effect uh, to to well, not in its effect, sorry, to the, in its um, simplicity. Yeah, uh, and and how you actually run it, uh, just a, a touch more complexity, but. Um, but not so much that it's... Um, well, I'll, I'll let the description happen and then uh, we'll uh, get into that, I guess. Yeah, so basically, the geothermal eruption battle zone is for fighting on the side of, like, um, an active volcano or just anywhere where there's, like, a lava flow that's slowly encroaching on the battlefield. Um, and it's got a really simple but really cinematic uh, mechanic to it. So this battle zone has just two rules to it. Dead simple. First one, encroaching lava. At the start of the battle, before armies are deployed, which is important, uh, determine which battlefield edge um, the wall of encroaching lava will move in from. This is the lava starting edge. 
players roll off and the winner nominates Battlefield Edge. That Battlefield Edge selected must be um, neither the attacker's soul Battlefield Edge or the defender's soul Battlefield Edge. It can't basically be like a deployment edge. It has to be one of the yep. like, neutral edges of the board. Um, and it can't be an edge that's like an escape route edge or something relevant to the mission. Uh, but once you've determined which edge is the lava field line, uh, nine lava counters are placed within one inches of that battlefield edge, equidistant from each other. So you end up basically with like, this line of markers down yep. your lava field edge. At the start of each battlefield round, the lava moves further onto the battlefield. Uh, the players roll off and then alternate moving the lava counters, starting with the winner of the roll-off. Uh, when it is a player's turn to move a lava counter, they first roll a d6, then choose a lava counter to move. Uh, they then move that counter a number of inches equal to the dice roll in a straight line directly towards the opposite battlefield edge. So basically, you roll off and then you um, alternate rolling a d6 for a number of inches and then picking a marker that has yet to move and moving it that many inches. So you'll end up... And use those. Trying to keep either your own guys safe with your low roll rolls or trying to uh, engulf your opponent in lava with higher rolls, right? Yes. Or the objective markers as well. Indeed. Because they don't typically move about. <laughs> That's true. That's correct, yeah. Um, so you'll end up with sort of like a staggered line of these markers as they make their way down the board every turn. Um, and what you do is you just draw like an imaginary line between each marker and the next marker so you can see where the jagged edge of like, the lava flow is. And then, once you know where it is, there's just the second half of the rule, which is engulfed in molten magma. Uh, once all lava counters have been moved, uh, the lava front is established. Draw a straight line uh, from the center of each lava counter to the center of the next lava counter. If a model is on the side of the lava front, closer to the lava's starting edge, it is said to be behind the lava front. Models, either partially or wholly behind the lava front at the start of each battle round, are immediately destroyed. This includes buildings, transports, and any units impacted within them. Units with the fly keyword and units impacted within a transport that has the fly keyword are not affected. Any model that does not have the fly keyword that moves through or finishes its move behind the lava front is also immediately destroyed. So, yeah, basically, there's lava. If you're in it, yeah. you're dead. And no matter how many wounds you've got, you're just, the model's dead. Yes. Like, unless you've got fly, in which case you can fly across the surface of the lava, which in itself, I think, creates some really cool moments. Um, yeah, yeah. It allows certain units, like, I always imagine, like, Tau Crisis suits, sort of actually just like flying around over the lava like i can't remember if they actually have fly or if they have jump or whatever but you know i'm sure there are plenty of tower units that can fly and hover over a lava field but they can then equally be chased down by like eldar jet bikes do you know what i mean can you imagine seeing a combat between like uh i don't know chaos raptors or storm boy or orc storm boys and like shining spears over lava <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's particularly cool, right? But the the really cool thing with this is it's surprising how much that actually forces movement of both players' armies because you're both trying to avoid a slowly shrinking battlefield or you're risking 
throwing units towards objectives that are soon going to be engulfed and yep. actually are they going to be able to survive like the lava getting to them before they get what they need to and get out of there um, and the couple of times I've played with this one what I've always done with um, my opponent is as the lava fields move down the board we physically remove terrain that can be removed from the board okay. as it gets engulfed like sort of depending on what it is like if there was a a two or three story like a uh, sector imperialis building and there were models in the building we'd we'd leave it and leave those models stranded in the building at that point because they can't go back down to the ground level <laughs> They're now yeah. having to fight from, you know, the first story and the second story. Like, if anything, what could be tempting is every battle round, you took the bottom story of the building away if your terrain allowed for it. So yeah. <laughs> the building would start sinking into the lava. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That'd be a nice twist on this. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous that you've managed to get a couple of games with this one. This is one Warzone that since I got the Vigilus book, I've actually tried to uh, get games using. But the, the couple of players at our club that I've approached are, are generally a little bit more straight down the line. They want a fixed point game uh, with you know one of the standard missions. And the, the, the idea of this one, I've managed to get them to read it, but the idea that your model is just destroyed no matter how many wounds it was, that's, that's kind of put them off, which was disappointing. Mm. Uh, but uh, hopefully, I, I, mean, I to be I, honest, I get a game with this one. I think this is one of the more stable battle zones. It's like the least swingy. Yeah, that's why I suggested this one yeah. rather than because uh, Warquake or something like that. That's, yeah. That that one's a oh, little bit more random. Yeah, Warquake can be destructive as hell, but also can be really swingy with who it affects and when. But like this one, there isn't any random table effects. There aren't any stratagems that you have to expend CP on manipulating. Uh, and you can play around it quite a lot. Like, you know what's going to happen. The only thing is you don't quite know how far any part of the field is going to move. But you know it's going to move. You know that next turn um, there's going to be the risk of an objective marker or terrain or even units potentially falling in, you know, being caught by the lava. But there's no reason why you have to be stood there really like it could have just moved away <laughs> you know yeah um, yeah no it's only creeping by six inches a turn at most, at most right? so, yeah uh, most things can move that kind of speed um but every time i've played with it it's been so much fun because say removing terrain or removing objective markers when they get engulfed um actually just it really concentrates the gameplay to other key moments because you'd be like right this turn i've got to capture objective three but objective three is currently right on the edge of the lava so i can get it this turn but i don't know whether or not the unit i send there is going to survive to get away from it after they've captured it yep or suddenly <laughs> little like maelstrom cards like supremacy where you you score a good chunk of victory points if you control every objective marker well, by turn four or five, there might only be four or like three or four objective markers left on the table if the other three have been devoured by the lava fields. Yeah, so it changes the the way those kind of cards play out. Potentially, yeah. Like, um, or if you wanted, you could choose to leave the objective markers, say, in the lava fields, say that like this is still objective three is here, and obviously units of the fly keyword can still claim it. 
because they can still get to it. Yeah. So you can sort of tweak it a little bit based on the forces you're using and how appropriate it feels. But there's there's lots of room to play with it, and it's dead simple. And all you need really is like nine bases, nine spare bases that you can even paint up little lava effects on if you wanted. Yeah, that's one of the things I was thinking of when I first read this. Uh, this battle zone was like I I, need, I just need to get some because uh, there's plenty of resin third party bases that represent lava. I could make some myself, or you can use the um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the technical paint that does the crackle. Uh, uh, you can make your own lava bases using any of those techniques, right? Is it the uh, Agrelan Badland one? Yeah, the, that's right. The one that, that breaks up. You can you can paint underneath with 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 red, orange, yellow colours. Uh, paint that over the top and dry brush it black, and you get quite a nice uh, lava effect quite often, right? Yeah, like it's such a a clever little thing that you can do just to really make a game memorable and more narrative. Just play Milstrom but play it next to a lava field. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly very um, grimdark. <laughs> oh, very, very grimdark. Uh, especially when, you know, quite often these big conflicts are causing, like, you know, real structural damage to planets. Yeah. Yeah, when we read the novels, you so often hear of um, Mechanicus powering their um, forges by uh, tapping lava vents and things like that and then when the forge gets destroyed that tends to go catastrophically wrong <laughs> or um, broadsides from ships in orbit down to a planet cracking the crust and uh, causing lava to come out next to a battlefield it feels very 40k this one to me especially uh, I mean all of them do but this this one especially feels very uh, reminiscent of, of several of the novels that we've read oh yeah definitely um, and then, if we move over to Vigilus of Blaze, um, this is actually the book that had the Field of Nightmares Battlezone in that um, I used in my recent game with the Death Guard. So I've already covered that one, but that's a brilliant one just for representing, as I say, warp storms, chaos rituals, anything where you want sort of like the thinning of reality to be represented. If you wanted, this could even work really well as a representing fighting in the webway where you know perhaps the thousand sons have breached their way in and are fighting some eldar and because the thousand sons have breached in there's a bit of warp instability going on you know plenty of uses for that one um but there's there's two ones in here that i think are really clever little extras uh ideas that you can play around with and that is the battle zone for fighting in a spaceship interior and the battles of fighting in an underground cavern. The spaceship one, I was going to say, I, I particularly like, it gives that real, as as, you, as I said earlier, I've been painting Space Hulk figures recently, uh, I've been playing Necromunda, and, and it really has that tunnel fighting feel to it um, that, that you'll get not just in spaceships, but in any sort of underground confined, uh, defined space that's not an open battlefield. Yes, I completely agree, and yet you're able to do that by using these simple battle zone rules without having to go whole hog and get like a zone mortalis board and play almost like, you know, a sub version of 40k. This allows you to still play your traditional 1750, 2000 point 40k game, but doing so on the interior of a spaceship. So this battle zone has just three simple rules to it. First one, enclosed space. Players cannot use any units with the flyer battlefield role at this battle zone. 
Makes sense. No aircraft. You're inside yeah, a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fair enough. But, you know, the big things are still legitimate. Like, you know, I could still use my Gorkonaut. That's fine. People can still use Imperial Knights because it's yep. presumed that you're, you're fighting somewhere in the cavernous space of a spaceship that's large enough for this battle to be taking place. But you're still not going to have aircraft flying around. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition, models cannot be set up in locations such as high altitude, low orbit, clinging to airborne creatures, whatever, or any other location that suggests the unit would descend from the skies or bury up from underground. So this is sort of playing into the deep strike mechanics that various units have. And basically you have to apply common sense to whether or not that method of deployment would be suitable for a spaceship. So I can't use my squat termite uh, carriers. <laughs> no, and no one like uh, Tyrion Morlocks burrowing the way up. Um, but locations such as teleportarium chambers, alternate dimensions, or similar locations from which a unit could gain access to a moving spacebound vessel are permitted. Players should agree before setting their units up um, if they are unsure if the location is appropriate or not. So you can still teleport your terminators. In fact, that's quite often a big part of the lore is teleport striking onto enemy uh, vessels because that's how you can get yeah. aboard. Um, Necrons appearing from pocket dimensions, um, webway strikes from Eldar, you know, depending on what you're striking, like maybe it'd be difficult to webway strike a Wraith Knight onto an enemy ship, but it wouldn't be so difficult to, you know, webway strike a squad of fire dragons. Just a little bit of, you know, leeway with your, you know, your fellow players and sort of decide before you really get stuck in what units can and can't use their deep strike rules in the environment of a spaceship. Then the two main rules that really affect gameplay. Uh, low ceilings. Players cannot use ranged weapons to target a unit that is not visible to the bearer. Though weapons of such an ability can still be used if the target is visible to the bearer. So, for example, uh, Imperial Guard Basilisks. You, yep. you can't you can't use them to target things you can't see because you don't have the space to actually be firing artillery shells, you know, like up into the air so they come down on their targets. You can still aim the basilisk directly at a target. You know, I can see that Gorkonaut. I'm going to fire the Earthshaker shell straight at it. That's fine. It's quite, a use, quite an effective use of the Earthshaker cannon, actually. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to be using it to hit someone on the other side of the you know, uh, loading bay, because if you try yeah. to aim up and over stuff, you're not, go you're not going to be able to get the shells to them because you're going to be hitting the seal. There's enough, not enough height available for the yeah. indirect fire. So uh, leave the whirlwind at home. In addition, each time a unit with the fly keyword moves in a movement phase, roll a d6 for that unit. On a one, the unit suffers one mortal wound. <laughs> a bang your head mechanic. <laughs> yeah, bang your head mechanic. You know, if you're flying, if you're trying to jump back your way through that loading bay, there's going to be cranes and machinery and probably parked space vessels and other things yeah. that are going to be hazardous to just be leaping through the air <laughs> around. Um, and then the stray shots rule, which I quite like. So each time a player rolls an unmodified hit roll of a one for an attack made with a ranged weapon with a strength of seven or more, draw a straight line starts from the center of the fiery model's base and runs through the center of the base of the closest model in the target unit. Continue to draw that line until it comes into contact with a piece of terrain or the edge of the battlefield, whichever happens first. Then roll d6. 
on a roll of a 1 to 3, all units are in 3 inches of the end of the line, so the D3 moments. So this is meant to represent that stray shots are hitting hazardous things in the environment. Yeah. So you're hitting power conduits, you're hitting bulkheads, and, and then breaking open into space. Um, you're, you're hitting fuel tanks, you're, you're hitting parked uh, vehicles or stacks of ammunition, whatever, you yeah. know, hazardous things are inside the spaceship, but only, you know, weapons of basically destructive capability, not small arms fire. Yeah. So and those shots are not just disappearing up into the atmosphere like they might do on a normal battlefield. Yeah. You know, your last gun is not going to be setting off um ammunition stacks or breaking, you know, blast doors, but your last cannon that's missed the target might it might yeah. hit something crucial and cause a chain reaction. Um and the funny thing is, it's not necessarily going to harm the target. It's going to harm whatever is nearby to where the shot impacts. Yeah, I think it's a nicely worded rule that works on on an open. You know, if you're actually still playing in an open battlefield, but with the spaceship battle zone, uh, it works quite nicely mm. then. Or if you are using something like Zone Mortalis or or some other, maybe the Necromunda tiles or something similar that that defines much more closed areas, it will work nicely with that as well. But like, I think this is a brilliant opportunity to use like your Sector Imperialis board tiles. Yeah. Fill it with lots of like sector mechanicum terrain, so it feels like the interior of a big industrial space, and you can also then like park up, say some of your larger like apocalypse scale vehicles. So you're not actually going to use in the game, but you can make it feel like that area is a populated space where a certain faction owns this vehicle or spacecraft or whatever, and it's like, well, here's all here's the packed row of bane blades that are in here. While well, you're busy fighting the guard, the Beyblades are operational right now because they're on board this, you know, mass lander. But there's um, some chaos marines have, you know, warped their way on board, started summoning a bunch of demons. And now there's this sort of like very close quarter, more or less infantry battle going on, but it's still a very large scale conflict and not down to the scale like you know, Necromunda kill team or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And basically, to create that feeling, all you need is a little bit of pre-planned army composition changes, and then these the basic yeah well basically one simple rule, really like you know just the straight shots rule. Um, yeah. And I mean and, and low ceilings here, so like two two like two actual gameplay rules, and that will create real dynamic sense of fighting on board a spaceship it's so cool that that is there and i think it's a crying shame that more people don't try them out yeah so if you are listening to this and you're one of the people that's just look at the back quarter of these vigilance books for the new lists go and look at the back of those they really are uh, quite engaging give you a better game and we won't go through all of them now but you know like say there's rules in here for fighting underground caverns there's uh burning uh, hive cities where like infernos are raging through the different floors, like vertical floors of the building of the buildings on the battlefield. 
There's... I quite like the speed wow one as well. So if you're playing out in the planes, you can get you and you you're having a battle, you can attract the attention of the speed wires that, that are racing about on Vigilus. Uh, seems a, another random uh, fun orc type thing to happen. I love the idea of the speed wire one being that um, you actually get if you're playing like at your local gaming club or whatever, and then the speed wire uh, triggers and comes blasting through. I think you should get your local orc player who might be in the middle of his other game elsewhere just to come roaming over for two minutes and basically be involved in the effects of resolving the speed war. He could even run, yeah. run his vehicle across the table as it wrecks some stuff up as it comes through if he wants. That's right. That's right. No, that would make it much more entertaining. Absolutely. I mean, you don't absolutely need uh, any orc vehicles or anything for this, and uh, I don't think we'll go through it in detail now, but uh, that's a really nice one to read up uh, oh, yeah, yeah. if you like your orcs. That, it, that's just done purely with dice rolls and rules effects. You, result, you work stuff Absolutely. out to represent an orc uh, that's just like uh, come blasting through your middle of your battle because you attract its attention. But I also think it would be a great opportunity to actually get a, like a third person at the table, even if it's just for five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And it looks like, moving forward, Games Workshop is probably going to be putting some more effort into releasing more things like the Battle Zones in the future. We know that more campaign books are on the horizon. They are planning to take a closer, more detailed looks at the different planets and classifications of death worlds and stuff like that that are out there in the Imperium. And they're going to be trying to produce more narrative play rules for them. So even just with the first two Vigilus books, there's tons of different things you can try out with Battle Zones. And I would really encourage anyone out there that hasn't tried them yet to give them a go in your games. Like... You said you don't even have to manipulate missions or army lists for the majority of them, and even the ones that you do, it doesn't take much pre-planning to say you're going to play, you know, an onboard spaceship battle, and just have a really fun game of forty k with it. Absolutely, I uh, definitely after talking tonight, I shall double down on trying to get a game with encroaching lava on the table. <laughs> It's so fun. I think that one is my favourite. I, I think it's actually the simplest one. I also think it's one of the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm totally inspired. Thank you, Tony. Great. Um, and I think we're probably just going to sort of round it off with some housekeeping on the way out, but I think that's probably everything more or less for tonight. Cause, uh, it's been a good evening. It has. It's been great. It's, it's been great having you on, Dave, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more shows with you in the future when you're available. Yep, yep, we'll look for the next opportunity when that's possible. Yeah, and if you are listening to this and you've made it this far and you clearly enjoy the show, then why not let me know about uh, any ideas you have for it? You can contact me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com or you can find me on social media, um, on Twitter at narrative40k um, or you can come check out the Facebook group. So the... Um, just search Narrative Wargamer on Facebook and you'll find us over there where we'll be posting our paint station garrisons, some of the uh, more obscure armies that Dave has. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, and if you would be interested in actually appearing on the show as well, I'd love to hear from you. Um, as I'm sure you've heard, I'm looking for plenty of guests and uh, potential co-host that will be interested in joining me and talking about all things 40k you know i'd love to hear from you so definitely reach out to me if you think you'd like to come on the show and uh, talk 40k with me 
Um, and I think that's I think that's about everything. Anything else from you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just thank you for inviting me on, and um, I look forward to the next time. Definitely. Thank you for being on. Thank you for coming and doing the show with me, and uh, for just ranting along about hobby stuff with me. And. Um, we will definitely, definitely have you on again in the future and I look forward to the next show guys. So we will see you then.